I was doing secret meetings with Macron and four or five people. It was really cool. And we should say, okay, what's the plan to start the party? And when do we launch the campaign? And how do we start fundraising? And that was fascinating. I have a, and a warm welcome to the Derby podcast, where I interview people who have followed their passion and mission. My guest in this episode is Guillaume Liege, an entrepreneur. He co-founded Explain, a startup to combine his passion for politics and his desire to work with great people. While at the Harvard Kennedy School, he witnessed how data-driven and field-focused Obama's campaign was. So he decided to bring back to France this best practice. He did it with a French Socialist Party in 2012, who won the election. He then worked closely with Emmanuel Macron to create and launch the En Marche Party, which also won the French presidential election in 2017. And then he preferred to focus on his business. And that was a very tough decision for him to withdraw from the campaign in 2017 and to also pivot the business. In this episode, Guillaume also talks about the joys and struggles of being an entrepreneur, like the many no's entrepreneurs have to receive in fundraising, about balancing ambition and ego, about learning humility as a Parisian consultant in a factory in Marseille, and much more. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Guillaume, thank you for being on the Derby podcast. Real pleasure to have you uh, with us. And can you explain who you are and what you do today? I'm an entrepreneur. Today, I run a technology company. I'm an entrepreneur who discovered late in his life that he was able to become an entrepreneur because initially I was a good student who went to good schools and such. But I've been an entrepreneur for 10 years. And then I actually discovered that I really enjoyed that. So we started... Um, the company has a, f a friends project. Friends were passionate about politics because I, I met my two co-founders when I was in the U.S. during the first Obama campaign. So we were both volunteers for the Obama campaign, and we just discovered how organized, how structured, how data-driven were the uh, campaign in the U.S. And we're all passionate about politics. And we had one simple idea, which was, oh, we should, you know, do the same in France. So initially, it was a personal project. And we ended up being hired by a, a presidential campaign with François Hollande in 2012 and turned this into an entrepreneurial project later on. So initially, I would say I started doing what I do because I love working with Arthur and Vincent. And I thought we were about to transform the way campaigns were organized. And I thought that's a good way to have an impact on the world because if you run shitty campaigns, you elect shitty candidates. And so if we can change that, maybe you could have more candidates who fit better to anyone. So we started like this, and for six years, we built the company around the idea that we're going to provide a software to make it easier to organize super data-driven campaigns in Europe without spending millions of dollars. So you don't, you didn't need to be Obama to organize like a great campaign. You could be the mayor of a Schiltigheim near Strasbourg and buy our software for your campaign, and it was affordable. And so, so that's what we did, and it worked to a certain point. Then we realized we hit ceiling in terms of, of our growth. And we had to make a decision, either stay focused on politics and maybe accept to be, to take our time, accept that we wouldn't be a unicorn in three years, etc., or try something different. And not that I want to become a unicorn in three years, not my point, but what initially was like a passion about politics, it eventually became like a job. And it was like, if, I, if my job is now to be an entrepreneur, I want to be an entrepreneur in a field where I can have the opportunity to expand, not where I feel that I'm stuck already. And that's the feeling we had with politics. So we did what's called a pivot. So we shifted completely our focus. We dropped our, our political uh, software. And so today we work for companies who do business with governments. And we developed a software that automates many of the processes 
that you have to go through when you do business development with public institutions. That is, uh, and it has to do with a lot of reading of amazingly boring administrative documents that's, that you have to read because somewhere there's information that may help you win a market, but you have to literally read 200 pages to find out two paragraphs. And so we automate all of this. And so this is, I would say, the second stage of the life of the company, and it's taking off really well, hence the fundraising process I'm going through at the moment. When we decided to abandon politics, of course, I was like, ah, it's, uh, you abandon a bit of the, of the original inspiration that you had. So it wasn't, it's not exactly... But actually it was easy. No, it was very surprisingly easy. I thought I would be sad. I would reflect upon the past and consider everything I failed at and eventually not changing politics. But actually I realized I, I, what I love is being an entrepreneur. And of course, we still work at the frontier between public and private. So there's a connection with something that I care about, which is public sphere. You Thanks. ask a tricky question, Gregor, it forces me to give very long responses. It's a great I mean, entry point for our conversation. What about being an entrepreneur that you love? So the first thing is I love, you have a lot of impact every day. Actually, you take decisions that you take. And as long as you don't care about the scale, we're, we're a 25 people company so far. As long as you put scale aside, you have a lot of impact. So you take decision and literally something changes the business development process. Maybe you do a good meeting with a client, then with a prospect, it becomes a client. You give a good feedback to one of your employees. He's happier. It's very cool. I can work better with you. I mean, you have a lot of very direct impact that you see, which I think is when people get frustrated with their job, sometimes it has to do with the fact that you don't know how what you do affect every people around you. When you're an entrepreneur, you see that very often. And the second thing is the, the control of my time. I really, I really enjoy that. I have, a, a, for some reason, I love swimming. And if you want to swim a lot, it's very important to have a, to be able to go and take out two hours in the middle of the day because that's the right time to go to the pool because no one's swimming. And uh, I can do that. And one last thing is sometime I'm at a company party and I'm like, this is really fun. This could be a friend's party. This is very weird. And also, I guess you're surrounded by people that you, when you're small, I hope we can maintain that as we grow. But you have this feeling of community. We managed to do that. And it's really cool to see that happening and that you're not the only one feeling that people tell you the same. So then you're like, okay, maybe I built something that may not be a unicorn, but actually where people enjoy coming every morning. That's also quite cool. You mentioned earlier a passion for politics. I don't know where that stands today. I'd be interested to hear more. Are you still passionate about politics? And so, no, today I try to avoid reading anything but politics because the state of politics is absolutely disgusting and I cannot act upon it at the moment. I can't do, I can't do anything ex except complaining. And literally I had lunch with a friend of mine and we were talking about that and both of us were like, so annoying to be in a state where you're complaining and complaining about the quality of people, the bad quality of people, et cetera. But, but then what's the point of complaining if you can't act and know how I would transform it? If I were in a position to do that, but I'm not in a position to do that at the moment. So to avoid that frustration, I leave it aside and maybe I'll start rewatching the West Wing a 12th time, which is what I did when Trump was elected. It's very frightening how politicians at the national level are really bad. If they were in the, in the, if they were to run a company, they would crash any company in three months. It's very different if you go at the local level, you have a lot of great mayors do a lot of great jobs. I mean, I, know I don't want to, to make the wound too painful, but if you no, go no, back please. to your passion, what was it about politics that you were passionate about? The ability to have a lot of power to change many people's lives at once. Literally, if you change 
if you fix the school system, if you fix the health system, and if you fix the, the, the justice system, if you do these three things in two terms as a French president, for example, you can die in peace. Uh, the problem is nobody talks about that. It's not, it, it should be the only focus of every campaign. It's not the, so what I would is like the possibility to have a major impact because today the power of a central government is very strong everywhere. Not, it doesn't matter how, if it's France or the UK, everywhere, central governments have a lot of power eventually. And they have a lot of money and they control a big part of the economy through laws and regulations, etc. So if you change that. Theoretically, you could have a huge impact everywhere. And I entered politics at the time I was a consultant at McKinsey. My first experience working on public policies was with McKinsey. We were doing a project on the reform of the French higher education system. And it was amazing. So what I did, I spent two months touring France, meeting with professors, university presidents, university administrators, trying to understand how the new law that has just passed would affect them. And what would they need to be able to make the most of it? And I thought that's the right address, right? You change the law, it affects people, but it will affect them in good, by the way. So they need help. And instead of telling them, okay, do that, and do that, that, you ask them, what can I do for you? And then the good thing is with McKinsey is like, we were literally talking to people on the ground, but we also had access to the presidency. So literally then we were debriefing the president, which was Sarkozy at the time, the uh, uh, advisor on higher education issues. So that was cool. You had the feeling that you were actually talking about problems coming from people to the people who had the, le the levers. So that's, for me, that's, that was an amazing experience. Of course, I was just a consultant. So it was like maybe a six months project. And then I, I went to do something else. And I don't believe much happened, unfortunately, afterwards. But in a way, that's what I like about politics. If you do things professionally, and if you realize that it's not about changing a law, it's about changing a law and then understanding the implication, the operational implication for everyone else. But if you do that, if you take the whole chain, you can actually do a lot of things. The problem today is politicians know how to change the law. And that's it. When you're mayor, you can't be disconnected because people yell at you when you're doing grocery shopping. So you can't ignore uh, the mm -hmm. field. But when you're the president or a minister or at high level, it's very different. So you have a much more power to be much more disconnected. Have you ever thought of getting into politics? That's why I applied to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And I went there. My idea when I went there was, okay, I have two years of work. I'll be surrounded by many people who share the same passion, but who come from different countries. So they won't consider me as a potential competitor. So we'll have great open conversation. And, and that, that was the case that happened. But my way to go into politics was when you want to enter politics, you have to find your way. We had this idea, we're going to transform campaign. And we used that to get access to one of the big parties in France at the time, which was the, the Labour Party, the French Labour Party, the French Socialist Party. And that we got hired by the presidential campaign. And there are literally 50 people, 60 people in the French presidential campaign. We were, we were three person part of that team. So it's, it was amazing. Literally in 2012, it was, I was living a dream. It was really fun to see that you could see all the politicians you would see on TV. They were literally, you're in the nearby office and you had access to them and blah, blah, blah. And that's when I decided I would never do politics. No, because I was like, the, those people are so mediocre. For many of them, you're like, I don't want to spend my life surrounded by people like you. I literally loved, and I enjoyed spending time with party members when I was in charge of the field campaign. So part of my job was to create a, 
kind of a, a, an organization where we would train people who train people, blah, blah, blah. So we would train the first level in a sense. So I was doing a lot of training all across the country. I was meeting with a lot of party members and I, they were great people. They were cool. But as long as when you go to the top, those people are only focused about what's in it for me, what's in it for me. But what's not in it for me, because then I have this great vision of where, what I want to do with France and oh, no, what's in it for me, just for me. And again, it's not that you could say, I don't care about that. I'm different, etc. But you still have to spend time with those people. And literally, the, it's a very, it was very, mediocre is maybe too strong of a word. But literally, I was like, you don't have a lot of time on, on earth and I don't want to spend too much time with those people. So that's why my, that's when we, when we decided to start the company, I was like, that's cool because I work with people I really enjoy and I work on a topic I really enjoy and I choose the people I work with. So that was, mm. that was my reaction, if you want it. I'm not saying I will never run. I would maybe consider running for a local office at some point. It's just first I have to close my fundraising, then... <laughs> make my kids good people, and then maybe I run for office. You talked a lot about impact. What about impact is so important to you? Because uh, a lot of things do not work really well in the world, and it's good if you can try to fix it. I'll give you another example. So a colleague of mine in the office, on his free time, wrote a memo for one of the French ministers. He had some well, access. He wrote a memo because he's also passionate about politics, blah, blah, blah. And he showed me and asked me for feedback. And I read the thing and I was like, so what, what do you want the person who's going to read that to do? And I realized he had not thought about that at all. So for me, it's just logic. You, you're taking the time to write a memo. So you want that person. What do you want? What do you want? What's the result? You want that person to call you back? You want that person to read a book you thought about? You want that person to write a new law? I don't know. I'm trying to have an impact on things because it's a good way to make sure that actually sometime you do your best efforts. Because if you always do your best effort at some point, something will happen. You don't know when. So maybe it's a way to reassure myself that I did the best effort somewhere at some point in the past. Yeah. And I guess that's a bit behind my question because I noticed that there are people who just want to enjoy life. They want to make the most of every day. They want to focus on their relationships at a very small scale, have good meals, have good laughs. And you know what? That's enough. And it doesn't mean that they're not ambitious professionally, but they don't really care about impact. And, and sometimes after many years, maybe they feel a loss of meaning for, okay, what am I doing? Okay, well, why am I here when you're facing a difficulty? And that's where meaning and purpose and, and impact, uh, or at least the sense of having an impact helps. And I wonder, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, on you needing to have an impact as opposed to other people who don't really care. I really admire the first category of people as well, right? Because again, eventually in the grand scheme of things, who will remember what happened, in what Francois Hollande as a president did like in a hundred years or, and who will remember that this guy had a campaign run by three, three guys, this will disappear. It's, it's, it has no importance at all in, in, in eventually. So I really aspire to, to be, to be a bit better and less focused about, about impact, especially with everything that is not related to work. I think when, when you're an entrepreneur, you're in a company, so of course you think about impact, otherwise at some point you have no company. I'm more talking about the rest, everything else, yeah. especially with my kids. I would really try to tell my kids that there are so many models to feel good in life. Of course, when you, if you succeed, if you're a good student, your parents will be happy, your grandparents will be happy. 
looking at people around me, it, it has no correlation with the level of happiness or that people can feel 20 years later. And so I try to be, to be much more open with my kids and telling them that there are so many models in life that they can embrace. I try to leave as many options to my kids as possible. It's difficult as your parent, you're always doing things you do without realizing it. All right. I wonder, is it worth going back in time? And you have alluded to some of the periods in time where you've made a certain decisions. I wonder if there are particular moments in your path that are worthy of discussing where you made, okay, big decisions. So yeah, yeah so there are a couple of months. So Harvard, no, so just for, uh, for the anecdotes, I did a high school exchange with a, a high school in Boston and we visited the Harvard campus at the time. And I, I just realized being like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and there was a guy who apparently was a student and I, I asked him to shake his hand and I was like, oh, I shook the hand of a Harvard student. For me, it was like something like out of this world, like literally something I would never have accessed. How old were you? I was, it was in second, I was 14. Okay. And when, and so a few years later, when I was at HSC, I, I knew that I was not, I didn't want to go into like a typical HSC career. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine who said, ah, oh, maybe we should try to apply to ENA, the French School of Administration to train top civil servants. And I was like, okay, yeah, maybe, but it's very annoying. It's another competitive exam. You have to prepare for two years. Blah. And then my friend said, I've heard of something. It's called the Kennedy School. And so we went on the website and I was like, oh, but that's exactly what I want to do. It's Harvard plus government. But oh, it's perfect. And that was in 2000. So I was 20. And I applied the first time when I was in China. So five years later, 25. Didn't get accepted. I was accepted to another university called Johns Hopkins in, in Washington, where it's a, it's in Baltimore, but their, their political school is in Washington, DC. And I decided not to go. It's a top, it's one of the top five schools. It's a great school, yeah. but I was like, I really want to go to Harvard, not because it's number one, just because of this Harvard thing, it's wheel hunting and everything. And so I, I decided it, it took me like two months. I was like, do I, should I go? And one of my best friends who I applied with, he went. So there was this, I was like, oh, we could go together. It would be amazing. And I said not to go. And so that was a decision. That was an important decision. And two years, uh, uh, and then three years later, I reapplied and that's when I got in. Mm -hmm. After being re-rejected, but then I re, you know, what I told earlier. So that was, a, so the Harvard thing is something. And actually the reason I went to McKinsey was to apply to Harvard because I looked at the profile of people who got accepted and actually McKinsey was like, you could see the, you could see the name very often. And there's another big moment, which is after the French presidential campaign, when I thought I would get a job in government. Actually, I was, I was, so Emmanuel Macron was now the French president at the time was an advisor to Francois Hollande. And I knew Macron, I had known him for a long time. We had worked together at McKinsey. When he was a civil servant, I worked with him as a consultant. And he offered me a job in his team at the presidency to join the pool of economic advisors, business advisors. And I was like, okay, amazing. Yeah. So I, there were a couple of interviews I went through and he called me and said, okay, it's a go. I just need the president to sign in on, the, on, on your hiring and we should be okay. And that whole process lasted like three months because it's complicated, blah, blah. And he said, okay, but let's set a date for you to start and you meet me at the Elysee at, at the presidential palace. And, and this, so this is Emmanuel Macron speaking. This is Emmanuel Macron speaking. That's pretty cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah he wrote one of my letters of recommendation when I applied to Harvard. So I, we met and on, on the day I arrived at the palace, he had a strange face and he said, I'm sorry, 
the president did not sign off. He froze every new hire. So there's no new, nobody can hire anyone, but give me more time, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, no, it's been six months after the end of the campaign. And I was writing a book at the time, so it was fine. I, but at some point I was like, hey, I need to, no, I won't wait more. And then I started to look for a job and I got, I met the CEO of Publicis called Maurice Levy. So a bigger ad advertising company. And he was looking for a chief of staff. And we had a very interesting meeting when we talked about many things. We we had a great fit. We liked each other in a way. And at the end, he said, okay, I'll see if I call you, but one advice for your next interview, try to go to the company website to understand what they do, huh? because that could help you. Because apparently I, I was not exactly super skilled. It's true. I was like, I, I, I told him I wanted to meet you. Because if I work with you, well, with you, so that was what's important. And of course, I'll learn about your company if I need to. And he called me the next day and to offer me the job. But during the interview, I told him that I was thinking of starting a company. And I was like, very honest, okay, I'm meeting you because I've heard so much about you. It's an honor to meet you. But just to be fair, I'm thinking of starting my company. So maybe I'm not available. I'm not sure. But he, I don't know, somehow we clicked and he liked that. And so he, when he called me back and said, okay. If you tell me you're going to say yes, I'll make you an offer, which was a way to say, okay, you have the option to come work with me, but you have to decide by Monday. It was a Saturday morning. And that's when I said, okay, no, I'm going to start my company. So I called him back and I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And he was great. He said, yeah, cool. I probably would have done the same thing if I were you. If I, if I were you age, I would probably have done the same sure. thing. And so, and since then, we know we're in touch and we see each other like once a year or something like that. Um, so How that was another decide? How did you make this decision? Because I think, being the chief of staff of Moist Levy, a huge advertising business, that sounds like an amazing opportunity for anyone your age back then. I remember the exact day I had dinner with a friend and I told him at that dinner what I had decided. So that's why I exactly I remember the restaurant it was the Ver Volet in Paris. And I think it's this control over what I do thing, control of my time. I want it. With the campaign, I guess we were our own boss, right? We had our own team. We got a budget. We did everything. Then for six months, we wrote a book about the campaign. So I was doing this. I was at a lot. And I probably started to understand that I really appreciated having a lot of control over my time. And for sure, with Maurice Levy, I would not have done that when the chief of staff of a CEO, it doesn't work like this. So maybe this. And also maybe the impression that, oh, actually, I can do something. I can be an entrepreneur. For me, entrepreneurs were a different category of people that I was not part of. And there are people who were born like with a special gene, the entrepreneur gene, and I, I don't have this one. And maybe I wanted to prove that actually I could do something because it's about creating something from zero. And maybe it was important for me to prove that versus being plugged in a very big organization, existing organization. Yeah, that makes it after having heard you on the importance of having control of your own time and I guess making decisions. But maybe I also wanted to be the person, not yep. the guy who's behind the person. Cool. Any other big moments for you? Yeah, there's another big moment, which is, again, you're going to tell me I'm very, uh, contra I'm contradicting myself. When Macron became a minister, I, I wrote a piece at the time called Political Parties as Startups, which was published on the Policy Network, which is a London-based think tank. So I send him this. And actually, if you look at it, it looks a lot at what En Marche later, because it was like, it was basically aggregated, a lot of thinking about how you could make parties evolve, right? So I send that to him and then I met, I met one of his advisors and, and late, later in, in the summer of August 18, end of August 18, Macron called, I'm not someone, not Macron director, someone called me and said, Macron is organizing a meeting. 
I can't tell you more, but can you be in Bercy for dinner tonight? And actually I was still on holiday with my wife's family in the south of France. So I flew for the dinner to Paris and dealing with Macron, like 10 people. And I remember, so people spoke about that and the objective of the topic was how to run for president. Is it possible? Well, and so I remember I started, I said, so Emmanuel, if you want to become president and you want to learn lessons from what we saw in the U.S., because they invited me for all the experience we had from the American campaign plus the 2012 presidential. And I, you know, it was, when I was like, so I really said the sentence, Emmanuel, if you want to become president, this is what Obama would do, tuck, tuck, tuck. I was like, oh, that's really funny to say that, right? Because actually things, and then he called me, then we had a couple of meetings and then everything was stopped after the terrorist attacks. This project somehow disappeared. But then at the end of December, Macron's main advisor called me and tell, told me, do you have a phone number nobody knows about? I said, what do you mean? He said, do you have a, can I, no, first of all, can I meet you in person? I said, no, I'm in Spain and then I'm flying back to Strasbourg for Christmas directly. So I'm not going through Paris. No, there's no way we can't meet in person unless you come to Strasbourg. He said, okay, is there a phone number nobody knows you connected with you could give me? I was like, I said, okay, I give you my mom's phone number in Strasbourg. She doesn't have the same name as me. It's a fixed number. It's a landline. I said, okay, I'll call you on this number on Monday at seven, at 5 PM. He calls me and he said, okay, we're starting a new political party with Emmanuel. It's going to be called En Marche and we want you to help us. You can't talk to anyone about this, not your business partners, no one. I said, can I talk to my wife? But he said, okay, you can talk to your wife, but that's it. And that was December, 2015. And so I was like, of course I'll do everything I can. And I was thinking like, it was not paid job, right? It was, I did that on top of my job. So like for three months, three, four months, we worked on the actual launch of the new party. And that was like, I was leaving the West Wing, which is a great show I love. So I was doing like literally secret meetings with Macron and four or five people. It was really cool. And we should say, okay, what's the plan to start the party? And when do we declare the candidacy? And when do we launch the campaign? And what do we need? How do we start fundraising? And that was fascinating. So that was, that was really fun. Much more fun actually than the 2012 presidential election, because then we were plugged in an organization and here we. So you worked for them for free for three months and then, okay, that's it. So I worked, so I was part of the, there was a small team. I was literally doing everything before everything became public. So we worked on the launch of the new political party and that launch involved doing a massive door-to-door campaign to go and meet French people and listen to them. It was called La Grande March, the Great Walk in a way. And so my company organized it. So my comp- at some point uh, we were allowed to talk. And so my company, he, oh, March became a client of my company. So we did that and we. It was amazing. We, we did a lot for them and literally we were, it's, it was as if we were part of the same team and they paid us, of course, but we worked like four or five times when they paid us anyway, but it was really cool. And everybody thought it was cool within the company. People were not complaining about long hours. They just thought, oh, that's amazing to be able to participate in that project. And so what happened is after the summer, I had decided that I would never leave my company to join the campaign full time. But the problem, I didn't tell that to Macron that specifically. So the thing is at some point they were expecting me to continue to dedicate a lot of time, but at some point it was not possible. You had to be full-time. It didn't make sense. After the summer, when he quit the minister, you had to become full-time. And I said, no, I won't do that because that would have meant like leaving the company forever. And, and I said, no, and that didn't go well. And so they literally cut me off the everything almost. 
which is which makes sense. You know? How did you make this decision? I didn't want to depend on other people. All the people I worked with at the beginning with Omar, they all became ministers, MPs, or advisors at the ADC. So I would have, sure. if I, if I could have been the MP for, for London at the time, but I know because everything, you depend too much on, on one person. And so probably that's the reason why I think. It depends on me. If I do my job and I'm lucky, it's going to be okay. If Macron, uh, with Macron, it would have been a very different story. But that was, it was not easy to accept, especially when he was so successful and you saw all, your, all the people you spent time with, they were like to, to, to were they working in the courtyard of the palace and it, all, all the media were talking about them. Of course, you have a FOMO feeling in a way. Yeah. It takes well, real conviction. And a conviction on what you want to do and what you don't want and knowing that, okay, I want to be independent. Cool. Wow. Those are really cool stories. And I have to admit, I didn't realize how close you were to, uh, to Macron yeah. in the early days. I mean, well, he's the reason why I started seeing my, my, my shrink. It's not a joke. I really went into a crisis as I was like, at the time I was like, oh, everybody's at the Elysee blah, 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 and then Macron is changing the world, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I started fundraising. I did my first fundraising for the company. So that worked well. So that was, in a way, I also had a success in 2017. I had to accept the consequence of my decision not to join the campaign. And for six months, I did not accept that. I wanted both. I wanted my freedom, my independence, and being so close to the king somehow. I wanted both. And no, I made a decision. It has consequences. And I was a struggle to accept those consequences. And that's why I started seeing this uh, psycho. Yeah. This is a bloody difficult choice. Not listening to the ego, because I, I could see how my ego would have yeah. got carried away. Oh, no, man. Of course I went through all that. My ego really? tricked me several times in the past. Can you tell other moments when it tricked you? Oh, no. Yeah, of course. After the, I think after the first fundraising, because we also had a lot of press coverage about our company. Le Monde says there was a title called One Software, Three Men Equals the Elysee and the picture of the three of us. You see that and you're like, mm. but it's complete bullshit. It's not bullshit, but it's come on. It's, it's over-exaggeration, of course. But I was caught into that I, because also for the launch of March, they had nobody. There was just Macron and he had no support at the beginning. They asked me to do a lot of press interviews at the beginning around the Grand March. So they were like, for two months, I did like a lot of radio shows, TV shows. But you know, your ego is like, of course, I'm here with you. Me, with me, people become president. So yeah, so that's a moment where my ego tricked me. And the second time is after the fundraising. I think for six months, I was useless for my company. Because I was like, ooh, I fundraised, ooh, I made a president, I raised money, I'm Superman. Bullshit, of course not. But I, for six months, I think I was, and my, one of my business partners, co-founders, Arthur, gave me a very tough feedback at some point, which was like, we have to change what you're doing. You're not doing a good job at all. And it was really, and he was right. I think you can't, I think you can't avoid it. When things like this happens to you, it's very hard. You need to be, you're, you're a superhuman to resist it the first time. The thing is, when it happens again, somehow in different forms, but detecting it and then remain humble. Much better, much better. So now I'm much better with this, I think. It sounds like you've learned a few lessons. And actually yeah, that yeah. leads me to, funny enough, some just standard questions I ask okay. at the end of every episode, if that's okay with you. Yeah? yeah, yeah, sure. And the first question is, what's the most important lesson you've learned from your journey so far? I think it's about accepting and also 
understanding that accepting is not quitting. Oh. And I'd love to elaborate on this because I think it's so important actually with the people I coach and just generally as just a life advice. When I, what I understand from you, accepting is not quitting. What you mean is you accept reality as it is with the goods and the bads and the stuff that actually, and usually with the bads, because we don't want to accept actually the stuff that we don't want to see that is uncomfortable or just unpleasant. So accepting it as it is, not necessarily ac accepting how it can be in the future. You're not quitting, making a difference. Sometimes you do quit, like you said, okay, actually I'm not going, I'm not getting into politics because mm. actually I don't want to be in this because I'm not sure I can have an impact. There are other ways I can have an impact and that's where mm -hmm. I'm accepting reality and I'm working with it. Absolutely. It's also accepting that even if you do your best, shit can happen. Mm. What's been most rewarding in your journey? It happened in other job that I was like afraid to go to work. Never happened since I started my company. Yeah, this. Yeah, but I don't. And again, and the independence and the freedom I have today, I think it's amazing. Really amazing. And that is pretty cool. Doing this every day for 10 years, I don't know if you've had a consistent streak, but it sounds like that makes a big difference in your life. No, but I'm not saying it's, I'm not stressed or whatever. I'm just saying... I don't have this angst, uh, angoisse, and you say, what's the proper word in English? That's, uh, that makes you want to stay in bed and not go out. You want to go out, it sounds. I want to go out, even in doing the very stressful fundraising process where I know I have to meet three funds in the day and they're going to say, and I'm going to have three no's. And also think about that learning, rewarding. Like now I, I'm, I feel much better when people say no to me. So much better because it happens so often. People, when you fundraise, by definition, you have most no's than yeses. Everyone, including Google, when they did that, everyone. But, and, but eventually when you, it's one way to, to have that in mind. It's another way to really have meeting people and they say no. And now I'm like, okay, I'm okay. I don't take it personally. I'm like, so no, okay. As you said, it's a process. In the process, you'll have 99 no's and one yes. Okay. What's been most challenging? Fighting your ego. And also, I know it's that, but also not using that as an excuse not to be ambitious. I don't know if I'm clear. Yeah. So sometimes you can say, ah, no, why, why building a big company? Why build a big company? Because, uh, because oh, it's an ego thing. The only reason you would like to be a unicorn is because then you'll be covered in the newspaper that, oh, the new French unicorn, blah, blah, blah. And I think that sometimes I use that, uh, I use my ego problem as an excuse not to try things that I thought I could fail at. Super uh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like finding the balance between actually being ambitious and not letting your ego drive the journey. Yeah. And then realizing that even when you're successful, even if I succeed with this fundraising, okay, my first reaction would be like, the market is so tough at the moment, especially the market is super tough. I don't know. I'm so good. I did that. Da, 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 da. Okay. I know I could react like that and probably a part of me should be happy that I led the process to the end. Okay. But at the same time, the reason if we're successful in this fundraising, it has to do with a lot of luck because some of the investors that are coming, I know them because I was lucky enough to be in those social circles and they were part of the same purpose and blah, blah, blah. So eventually you realize that a lot has to do with, again, right time, right place. And not so much the uh, you level of the genius at fundraising or, or whatever. 
And, and again, but you can't just say it's all about luck because otherwise you just do nothing and stay in your bed and wait for the luck to take you somewhere in life. So again, it's this balance. I find it's yeah. challenging to navigate between those two ideas. Yeah. One that well, you control everything, the other yeah, that exactly. you control nothing. And what experience has helped you grow the most? Professionally, yeah. Not necessarily. No. So the conversation with my shrink, definitely a lot. And also... A very special person I met when I was working at McKinsey. It's a guy I really, his name is Philippe Grandjac. He was a, an experienced hire from McKinsey. He's a guy who worked 20 years in factories and was hired as McKinsey as an expert on operational issues. And we worked together on a steel factory in the south of France. And, and it was tough. We were like in the field, like with the workers and McKinsey had a terrible reputation because 15 years earlier, they had recommended like the layoff of like. 30 people, 30% of the people. So everybody remembered McKinsey as like the devil, the capitalist devil, blah, blah, blah. And they looked at us like, ah, you're flying from Paris. Who are you to tell us who you are? They were from Marseille. And I was a super young consultant and, and I really, I made so many friends amongst the workers. Literally at the end, they authorized me to take pictures of machines. Nobody's allowed to, they offered me a book. It was, we, and we were, we were coming from very different social backgrounds, social circle, but we had an amazing time just because as we will, I don't know, it was like, because they realized I care about them. And the reason I cared about them is because I cared about them, but I was very bad at showing it. And Philippe Conjac, this guy with a lot of experience, who had been, who had managed tons of people, who had seen very complex situation between coworkers, et cetera. He, he really helped me being humble and he taught me how to go out of your comfort zone, listen to people, let them speak. Don't try to have the right answer every time. Just let them speak and we'll see something will come out of it at some point. And I realized that one of the, one of my, one of the workers from the factory, well, we had an office where we could meet and I was sitting working on my laptop and he arrived and he looked at me and said, that's my chair. Like what the fuck? We all changed everything. He said, "That's my chair." So I looked around. I looked at Philippe, and Philippe he, he looked at me. And he said, "Don't shut the fuck up. Don't say sorry. Don't say anything. Leave the change change seat." So I I stand change tension in the room. The show was later. I remember I had a question about something, and I went to this guy. I said, "I'm very sorry. There's something I really don't understand. And could you explain me?" And I really I, I told him. I'm, very humbly, I don't understand anything. And we spent like an hour and a half together. And he was speaking a lot, explaining me and talking about his own experience. And literally things started changing. And then we started working together more and more. And eventually we, I don't know, we were like super good friends. But this guy was a 50-year-old guy with a working class background. And I was the elite school consultant from McKinsey, flying from Paris every... Again, I was not, that's not what I was telling them, but I guess that was the image they could have of us. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I, that was so nice. So rewarding that moment when I, uh, people, they looked at me as a human being. I looked at them as a human being and we dropped our suits in a way. And that's very I, hard yeah. to achieve. Thank you for sharing this pretty cool story. Who's inspired you? Or who inspires uh, well, you? This guy I mentioned, Philippe Grandjac was really, yeah, I really, he was so good at understanding how people's relations and it's, it's, yeah, he was, and he had this expression. He said, you have to give love to people. Donner de l'amour, he said, because I was complaining about actually another consultant who had joined the team. I said, this guy is such a douchebag. I mean, I can't work with this type. They're the type A consultants. Oh. And he said, Guillaume, 
I don't want to hear you complaining, blah, blah, blah. Stop and give him love. I said, what does it mean? He said, give him love. I said, I don't understand what it means. He said, you don't have to hug him or whatever. You just have to look at him with love. And I said, okay, I'll try to do that. He was very vague. And actually I did that. And I looked at the guy, I remember it. he was in the room. I was looking, I said, okay, I relaxed my body. I started breathing. I was like, okay, he's a human being like me. He's going to die one day. We all share that. All right. I love him. I'm going to give him love. It actually did work. <laughs> it did work several times. In what, way? Yeah, <laughs> what way did it work? In, in a way that I was, I, I got interested in the guy instead of, because he had a, I don't know, he had a role of, he was reporting on each consultant's work for the, to the partner, something like that. And instead of being like, come on, man, what are you doing? We're doing our work. You don't have to control us, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, well, of course, but tell us what to, tell me more, how we do that. And I was asking questions. And again, when you start listening to people, let them speak, etc., then something happens. When you do it generally, my point is, you have to, it has to be genuine. It can't be calculated because it's calculated. You can, it can work once or twice, but not more. Someone else who inspired me, my, my shrink, I think is uh, someone I, very important for me. In what way does it inspire you? I think we, we share a lot of, we share a lot of values and he, he's 70 years old. So he's older than me. And when I'm like, okay, when I'm his age, if I'm ever his age, I'll, I'd be happy if I would have led a life the way it led. He made mistakes and we talk about it. It's not perfect at all, but the way he managed the, the mess of life is something I'd like to be able to do the same. And, uh, and another friend, and, and also my, and I, I'm sorry, before, before you move on, that's because yeah. the mess of life, and I can't help just look back at our conversation. And I think you talk about it really eloquently. It's like, life is messy. It's like finding the balance between sometimes really contradictory signals. And what about him? How does he manage the mess of life? If you were to share one thing. Yeah. How does he manage accepting it? I think it's he's the, it's, it, it, no, no, I'm not joking. It took him two years or three years to make me understand the concept of being, because it's one, say, one thing to say it, it's another thing to understand how you can apply it to yourself, to concrete situation. But yeah. And I think he, I won't tell you, but he has, he has, he had one an amazingly dramatic story. It's really something you wish would never happen to you or anyone you love. And it's a situation where you're like, wow, how can you live with that? How can you live with that? And the fact, and I actually asked him this question, I said, how do you live with that? And he, he told me, I have very bad moments. I have moments where I feel really bad, but I know it's going to happen. And I know there will be other moments. And I know the mirror is I have sometimes so much energy for life. I know that I know both can happen. And I know that I can survive the bad moments because I've done it in the past. And I know that better will come because it happened in the past. Yeah. But really, yeah. it's a, yeah, accepting things is quite important. I'm looking at time, Guillaume, and I, I know you need to go. It was a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Derby Podcast. I hope you got inspired to follow your mission with passion. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. I would also really appreciate it if you can leave a review on your podcast platform. It makes a huge difference and it will help others get inspired by these stories too. Till next time, derby yourself.